Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part of episode 50, which is all about fighting fantasy. It's a bit like the Warlock magazine, full of bits and pieces that didn't quite fit into your backpack. We've had a couple of new reviews since the last one, and I think they often do a better job of describing what the podcast is about than something I can spin. This is from Ad Astra on the grognardfiles.com site. You need an editor. I listened to hear a review of Ice version of Lord of the Rings to decide if I wanted to pick up the supplements. Unfortunately, I had to wade through an hour of trivial banter, more tedious than anything that Tolkien ever committed to paper, before getting to anything remotely resembling one. That's right, we're more tedious than Tolkien. We can but aspire to such greatness. Thank you, Ad. But we don't really do reviews. Maybe this one from Alistair Smith over at Apple Podcasts explains it better. Over the last year, a time of solitary walks and limited fun, the Grognard Files has been an unalloyed joy. Yeah, this is definitely better. Dirk and Blythe's easy style and engaging chat mean that I now think of them as friends, apart from only ever hearing their disembodied voices. Great discussion of RPGs, old and new, a huge affection for the pioneers of the genre, and a nostalgia that's made me reflect upon my entry into the hobby and why I went into the deep freeze for nearly 30 years, and why it's great to be back. Thanks, Alistair. Ian Livingstone returns to the Grogpod to face the Games Master screen and talk about Elements of his highly influential career in gaming, including White Dwarf, computer gaming, and his latest venture, bringing gaming to education. Armchair Adventurer, at Daily Dwarf from Twitter, has written an essay that I'll read, which looks at how White Dwarf responded to solo gaming and the emergence of fighting fantasy. Fabio from Twitter has provided his first, last and everything, he was one of the regulars at Games Workshop, Dalling Road, Hammersmith, London, back in the day. Judge Blythe joins me in the vast empty space of the Room of Roleplaying Rambling to discuss South of Watford, a documentary that's available on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. It was a regional television programme that appeared in the London area back in 1984. It's like a snapshot of history as it features Games Workshop Darling Road and an interview with Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson, followed by a section on LARPing at Treasure Trap. At the end, we reflect on Warlock of Firetop Mountain and a recent game of advanced fighting fantasy that I ran face-to-face. OK, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Games Master Screen! Okay, so I'm going to put this uh, Games Master screen between myself and Ian. I've got two six-sided dice, pencil and an eraser, and I'm going to roll on this table, apparently at random, and pick out some highlights from Ian's career. So let's go. 
So I've rolled double one, and that's a that's a critical in my eyes. That's white dwarf. And so we talked a little bit about white dwarf and how important was white dwarf in establishing Games Workshop? It was very, very important. Um, we before that published a fanzine called Alan Weasel, which was an instant print, two or three page thing with didn't look professional at all and didn't have a very big circulation. I think the high point was 200 copies. And I'd seen The Dragon had come out and done well in the States, and I thought we needed a UK magazine. So it was a very big decision because we were on very limited, um, thin ice in terms of cash in, in, in the business. So it was a, a big decision to print. I think we printed 4,000 copies of the fish issue on. Um, so a lot of money was invested in, in the production and also the printing of, 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 of White Dwarf. But I'm delighted to say it sold out, um, which was in, so I'm sure our distribution network wasn't that bigger in 1977. But it it proved that you know, we had to up our game in terms of production values and and, and reach. And um, it was it was a really encouraging, and of course, it set the scene for Workshop being uh, you know, elevated our status. I'm sure it made the company appeared to be much bigger and more professional than it actually was because uh, we were still living in pretty grim circumstances and operating out of this uh, this bread bin in, in Shepherd's Bush. But it really elevated, I think, the company. So we had been trying to piece together Rashomon style from different people, the uh, experience of producing White Dwarf. So... Jamie Thompson um, has been on, and uh, Mark Gascoigne and Ian Marsh and uh, Dave Morris. So it sounds like um, it were, we call it the rock and roll years when you're in Sunbeam Road, and um, uh, that, a lot of creative energy around that. How did it feel for you of being the boss of these uh, people um, trying to put the magazine together? Well, again, it was fun with those guys. You know, we used to have, have a, a lot of fun together, and and you know, I encouraged them to be be critical in a fun way of of me as I was of them. So it was it was all kind of very matey atmosphere, and I also kept informing them that they were having it easy because when I started it off, it was I did absolutely everything from you know writing some of the articles under a pseudonym to getting the whole thing typeset and coming back with all the types all the text which I had to then have to cut up and paste on a homemade light box using cowgum which had this sort of strong um, toxic smell almost that made you feel a little bit high just breathing in all day and, and then the, doing it in my bedroom in Shepherd's Bush in the, which had a leak in the, in the ceiling made those fumes horrendous and used to have these stumping headaches. So was, White Dwarf was produced with a lot of love under pretty dire circumstances in the early days. So, I, of course, I remind them how lucky they were to be in the luxurious palatial sunbeam roads where they had it, uh, all the resources at their fingertips. <laughs> and you've been trying to piece together that, uh, that st- early story, haven't you, for a new book that's coming out soon? Oh, indeed. Um, it's um, very late in coming out, but uh wanted to maintain or make sure that it was a, as much as a correct story as we could tell. Obviously, 
events that happened over 40 years ago can get a little bit confused, but um, we've done our very best to to tell the, the true story of the, the, the origin story of Games Workshop from 1975 to 1985, 86 kind of style. So it's called The Dice Men and it's, uh, it's, it's a history of Games Workshop and it's been published by uh, Unbound. So you can pledge, it's a crowdfunded publisher and I think you can pledge till almost the end of this year. And it's a big glossy, loads of pictures. Uh, it'll be I have over a couple of hundred pictures in there, some a lot of which have never been seen before. Mm-hmm. We found all transparencies that I've had to have scanned. And uh, yeah, I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised when they see the, some of the photos that have never been seen before. Obviously, some of them are highly embarrassing the way we look and some of our colleagues look. But I mean, it's, it really captures a moment in time and how this small funny games company took off in in the in the 1970s so it's been great fun writing it and uh, i hope people enjoy it when they read it yeah and I, I guess it's been good reconnecting with those people that you worked with back then yeah very much i mean we had a big helping hand from jamie thompson who did a lot of the early drafting and research work and then you know i kind of took it over and did an awful lot more research and writing and talked to people he hadn't spoken to and tracked down people. And then sadly, of course, many of those people have now passed away, including Albi Fiore and most recently Duncan McFarlane and Richard Halliwell. So it's been kind of mixed emotions mm. uh, going over the old times, but um, it's great to have captured it. They're kind of, you know, people, I think it's really important to, to uh, get down in a volume what as close as you could possibly get to being the actual reality of the situation uh, all those all those years ago let's uh, let's go back to the table ah so here's a, a an eight so that's a d8 and i want to thank you for battle cars because battle cars i spent a long time uh, playing at battle cars um and it and it, um, it in that uh, early thing, you you were contributing and, and creating games like Judge Dread. Um, so how was that actually um, producing games? Is that is, was that was that a, a dream come true? Yeah, I, I love coming up with game systems and mechanics and trying to apply mechanics to exciting themes. And and with Judge Dread, I was a you know, big two thousand AD fan and enjoyed creating that game. I didn't want to make it too heavy, so. Was it quite a light-hearted game? You know, the fact that you can prosecute Judge Death for littering kind of creates some, you know, humorous moments in, in that particular game. And in Battle Cars, you know, I was obviously a Mad Max fan. Um, Car Wars was obviously influential, but I'd always loved the kind of post-apocalyptic worlds of and and cars. I was a big, big fan of of cars and particularly muscle cars in the US. So putting all that stuff together started on this idea of battle cars. And um, you know, time was always my enemy, whether it's running workshop or, or writing Final Fantasy game books. And um, Gary Chalk, who we hired in to be a, a, an artist at workshop. In fact, it's Gary and Joe. Joe Diva used to work for us at workshop as well. And they obviously left to start the, the the Lone Wolf series. Um, Gary was throwing him straight into making um, 
working on on battle cars, and so he he helped very much with the design and and all the interior artwork. But um, I commissioned one of my favourite artists to do the cover, Jim mm. Jim Burns. It's fantastic. And I was at Games Day um, when you were in um, a seminar with uh, US Steve Jackson, and when Battle Cars was mentioned, everybody booed. And I was saying, oh, no, because I, I always thought that it was a much more accessible game than Car Wars. Yeah, well, <laughs> of course, yeah. I would agree with you, but um, I could understand it. <laughs> but, uh, but otherwise, yeah. Let's go back to the uh, table. Ah, okay. So this is uh, this is computer uh, games, and you're contributing to computer games. And what struck me reading uh, Dice and Dragons again is it's quite there's a chapter in here where you um, talk about computer games, how important they are, and how the capacity of computers are not quite there yet. So, did you always feel that computers were going to have a role in gaming? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the early days, Steve, Steve Jackson and I in our flat, we used to play in television, a very, I think some 8-bit games that were pretty low on, on, on pixels and pretty low on computing power, but the magic of, of digital was right there from the, the outset. Um, I think the difference between video games and, and and Final Fantasy game books, for example, is is that it's all play, it's all part of the same experience. But if you want to differentiate them, I'd say that um, games tend to stimulate the senses, whereas books tend to stimulate the imagination because there's there's no graphics, of course. So that's the differential part. But I enjoy both. And, and um, having enjoyed playing games there we published some on the commodore uh, on the on the pet we games workshop produced their own games and on sinclair spectrum um we could we could see that inevitably technology was going to advance over time and every time there'd be an advance in technology would offer more uh in terms of of gameplay potential from the from the raw computing power to be able to process more data to the the graphical display that was being enabled by the the bigger horsepower machines and thus it proved to be over over time to the point now of course where you have an interactive cinematic experience a bit like watching an interactive hollywood movie but of course back in those days it was pretty limited uh, the capacity of the machines to be other i think anything other than text and a few kind of basic graphics but um from a personal point of view, when when Death Trap Dungeon was riding high in the charts in 1984, two two guys approached me who'd been in the advertising agency and came knocking my door and said, "Would I design their launch product, which is a game called Eureka, um, which we had programmed in 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 Hungary for secrecy because there was a twenty five thousand pound prize attached to the first person to solve the mystery." Of this time travel game, which I I helped design. Well, I did design, but somebody else programmed. Um, and um, and then it was more of a desire to get into video games. And when I started our workshop in '91, I joined Domart, the company that published Eureka, invested in it, and then two years later, 
um, we put four companies together to create IDOS, this new new company that actually floated on the stock exchange in '95. Of course, IDOS, the most famous game we published was Lara uh, Croft Tomb Raider. So I was involved in in launching what became a global blockbuster video game. So it's quite bizarre from moving to to analog to digital, but um, you know I've, I'm still very much involved with the video games industry and and, and still very passionate about it. I suppose it's too late to um, submit my um, completed entry for Eureka. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid that prize was what. <laughs> if you got the right, the idea was to, I don't know if you remember, that was to find a number, which was actually a phone number at a solicitor's office, and you left a recording message on the machine, and the first person to do it won this prize. And I remember handing over the check on, on national TV <laughs> and uh, to a very excited young person who, who won it. But um, yeah, video games. Let's say you know I'm involved with quite a lot of video games companies as an investor and mentor and helper and chair, also chairman of a public company, Sumo Group, in, in based in Sheffield, mm -hmm. a thousand developers and uh, mm -hmm. and on the investing side, I'm also a partner in a, in a venture capital fund called Hero Capital that invests in in, in video games to you because I'm very very aware that the UK in particular is kind of overperformed in 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 creation of content but it's always been underserved by by capital as uh, i've witnessed firsthand and having to live in the van in the early days of workshops so i think um games and video games are very much undervalued in terms of not just the economic value but the cultural and social value that they bring to society mm, definitely let's um roll for the last time on here Okay, and uh, this is a, well, I can't add this up, but uh, it's about your role as an educator, because when I started this, I said that you had a massive influence on me, and um, playing role-playing games shaped me academically, and what my interests were, and you've kind of extended that in your interest in being educator, and a mentor, and influencing government as well, haven't you? Yeah. Well, in my role of, um, of when I was chairman of IDOS, you know, it was it was difficult even then to find enough software engineers and artists and animators of a high enough quality for for the games. And realised it wasn't just the games industry; you know, all the digital creative industries were struggling similarly. So I went to Ed Vasey, who was the culture minister at the time. This was in 2010, and he tasked me. I just kind of threw it all back in my court and said, "Well, write a review and." Uh, and he helped um, get funding for the review and Nesta published the review. It's called NextGen. You can still get it from the, the Nesta website. And it was largely about looking at education in, in, in at ICT education, um, how we were, effectively we found that kids were being bored to death learning Word, PowerPoint and Excel using other people's software and giving no insight how to create their own content. And so I realized that to make any difference uh, for children, they had to move from being consumers to creators of technology. They had to move from the passenger seat to the driver's seat of technology. Not everyone's going to become a coder, but they have to understand how code works and they don't have to write their code. There are so many engines and libraries and utilities out there that they can be makers rather than just users of, of tech. You know, in video games, whether they use Unreal or Unity or other 
bespoke engines to create content. It doesn't matter, but you need to understand how this, this whole thing works. Um, otherwise, being marginalized, because digital literacy for me is as important as literacy and numeracy. At the same time, you know, I'd seen the effect that Fighting Fancy had had on people. That as I said earlier, that agency, that learning by problem solving, and how games really were a contextual hub for learning. You know, games, video games, board games require you to problem solve. You can't get through them without problem solving. That you learn intuitively. Um, you know, punished for making a mistake, like an exam. You get it right. You're seen as able. If you get it wrong, you're seen as less able. In a video game, you're encouraged to try again and again. And over time, everyone can be a winner. And games like Creativity, effectively digital like Lego, you learn learning by doing that applying the heat of a furnace to silica sand a child will make glass will put in their environment and that contextual practical learning is so much more impactful than just listening to someone telling you this stuff and you forget about it and games like roller coast tycoon where you're understand the physics of building the rides, the, the economy of pricing the rides, the managers of staffing those rides. This is a management simulation. And if you still don't understand the value of games positively, when you're flying, when we're allowed to fly ever again, think about the pilot, how they learn to fly. Would you prefer they learn by reading a book? Uh, how many degrees do we move this earlier on? I can't remember. Or using simulation software, which is effectively game, but without the scoring. So there are so many kind of meta skills that you can learn through playing games. I think I think that learning should be fun and enjoyable and engaging, not the traditional broadcast model. It should be children should be set projects, work in teams, collaboration should not be seen as cheating, and we have to find a different way to assess children uh, rather than using them as guinea pigs to set up league tables. Uh, comparing one school against another. That seems a bit of a point in sexist to me. So it should be more about focused on what the children are learning. How do we make them work ready and world ready? How do we make them future ready? And I think education system has failed to keep up to the demands of the 21st century, which is being transformed by technology. And you know, they need to be able to be able to adapt to a very fast changing world and be as I said, uh, uh, in the driving seat, rather than the, the passions of this, this transformation. So long story short, uh, the review was published in 2011. Um, we managed to convince the government to change ICT to computing. It's still not, the curriculum still not creative enough for my liking, but it, it's a starting point. And then I was <laughs> baited by people to say, well, you need to open a flagship school. So that's finally happening after quite a few years of, of, of work to the Livingstone Academy Bournemouth opens this September. So it's a state school. It's a central government funded uh, school. So open to everybody in the area. And um, so it will be all through eventually. So for reception, uh, secondary in a sixth form, and hopefully it'll be a, say a flagship for, for doing, making digital creativity and a good arts education to get children feeling that they can be job makers rather than just job seekers hopefully fantastic oh, a great project 
And and that's it this September, is it? So it's got the first intake this year. Yeah, so it'll be reception in year seven, and every year you add on a new yeah. cohort as the as yeah. it grows. Yeah. And and have you got a role in shaping the curriculum for that? Well, you still have to serve the national curriculum, obviously, but the way you deliver it can be in your own way. So uh-huh. we're hoping a more a more engaged learning process will have a byproduct of a great exam results rather than just a traditional way of delivering a curriculum. Well, it's just another factor in your fantastic legacy. So I want to say thank you very much, uh, Ian, for speaking to us. But more, important, more importantly for our listeners and for me, uh, just thank you for what you did in bringing role-playing to, uh, to the UK. Absolute pleasure. And uh, life is the game and long may it continue. Thank you. The White Dwarf. Fighting Fantasy and the Dwarf. Fighting Fantasy in White Dwarf. So how did that go down with the readership? I cannot understand why a role-playing games monthly has wasted so much space to a simpleton's adventure. Hmm. To print a solo adventure in White Dwarf, the role-playing games monthly, seems to me to be an attempt to gain a much younger audience. This patronising approach appears to be rapidly becoming the trend, and the magazine cannot but suffer from it. Is this the sort of dross that's supposed to encourage a mature attitude to role-playing? Role-playing games have been fighting against the image of triviality for years, and it is precisely material such as fighting fantasy game books which encourage this image. Let us not have such material creeping into the ancient and highly respectable White Dwarf. You could always rely on a considered response from the crusty old grognards in the letters page. Still, despite this attitude, White Dwarf had an ongoing relationship over the years with Solo Adventures and the RPG's tearaway young brother, the Fighting Fantasy Game Book. It started, of course, not with Fighting Fantasy, but with Tunnels and Trolls. The game was well known for releasing solo adventures, so this was an ideal way for Ken St. Andre to introduce TNT to White Dwarf readers. The Mad Dwarf solo scenario in issue 31 was small but perfectly formed, much like the eponymous dwarf himself. I suspect this was the first sight of a solo adventure for many readers, myself included, but there was much fun to be had getting involved in the shenanigans at the Mad Dwarf Inn. Fighting Fantasy's first appearance came courtesy of the review of The Warlock of Firetop Mountain in issue 36. The reviewer recommended the book to novice and veteran players alike and said that Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone were to be congratulated on the successful development of an original idea that should benefit the whole hobby. Overall, 10 out of 10. Now, it strikes me that open box reviewers of early fighting fantasy books had to walk something of a precarious line. While these books were published by Puffin and not Games Workshop, the author was either Ian Livingstone or Steve Jackson, the two godfathers of Games Workshop and the British gaming scene as a whole. Don't bite the hand that feeds. 
Nevertheless, I think the reviews were pretty fair on the whole. Often, it was Marcus Rowland casting his critical eye over the latest releases. He summarised the highlights of each book, identifying Death Trap Dungeon as a vicious gauntlet of monsters and traps, for example, noting that although they weren't role-playing as such, they were nevertheless often great fun. He correctly summarised that they contained many stealable ideas for your RPG campaigns, and back in issue 42, Dave Langford did jokingly threaten that he'd be writing a scathing killer reviews of all the books by Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson, now infesting the shops. Although, sadly, this never came to pass. Now, I'd been playing RPGs for a year or two by the time Fighting Fantasy Gamebooks came on the scene, but I still bought into the Fighting Fantasy craze. What with the coverage in White Dwarf and the word-of-mouth excitement about the games books in the schoolyard, it was impossible not to. Being a real Ian Livingston fanboy, I focused on his books in particular, my favourites being The Forest of Doom and Death Trap Dungeon. I think my attitude to game books was somewhere between that of Dirk and Blythe from their discussion in last month's pod. I realised that they fell somewhat short of proper role-playing, but still enjoyed them immensely. I really appreciated their immediacy, even back in the day, organising an RPG session involving several players was sometimes difficult, and usually required preparation beforehand. Remember kids, in the 1980s, a large amount of prep for the GM was mandatory. In contrast, with a fighting fantasy game book, all you had to do was roll for three stats, and you were off straight away, wandering into the gloom of Darkwood Forest, or embarking on Baron Sukumvit's Trial of Champions. An instant adventure. As the game book phenomenon exploded in popularity in the mid-80s, Games Workshop looked to tap into that audience and bring it into the White Dwarf fold. Two multi-issue solo adventures were published, The Castle of Lost Souls by Dave Morris and The Dark Usurper by John Sutherland and Gareth Hill. I spoke about Dave Morris's scenario a few pods back, while it had its own custom rules. The Dark Usurper was an out-and-out fighting fantasy adventure, as you sought to rally your allies and reclaim your birthright from the dark forces arrayed against you. Fun, if fairly inconsequential, although the third part did extend the fighting fantasy rules slightly with some simple mechanics for resolving mass battles. And for the completists amongst you, in between the two solo adventures was the full-blown RPG scenario Beyond the Shadow of a Dream by Ian Marsh, statted for both fighting fantasy and basic D&D a city-based adventure involving a search for a missing person who may not be all that they seem. This was enjoyable on the whole, although some elements were well of their time, shall we say. The inexorable rise of fighting fantasy meant that it got its own magazine, Warlock, originally published by Penguin. Games Workshop took it over from issue 6, Sadly, there were only seven subsequent issues, although according to that there internet, it lasted for 63 issues in Japan. 
But while Games Workshop were at the helm of Warlock, there wasn't much need to cover fighting fantasy in White Dwarf anymore, and so the features and reviews petered out. You couldn't kill a good idea completely though, and so, even as the death knell sounded for RPGs in White Dwarf, the magazine featured one more solo scenario. Carl Sargent's Night of Mystery for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay in issue 106. A race against time and the forces of chaos nestled between pitch variations for... Blood Bowl and Warhammer 40,000 Heavy Artillery. Instead of wallowing in nostalgia for the past though, I'm going to end by looking to the future, because fighting fantasy is once more enjoying something of a resurgence. Tin Man Games have brought game books to various digital platforms. There's no better way of whiling the time on your phone than visit the Caverns of the Snow Witch or the Island of the Lizard King. I'd recommend checking out their stunning graphical version of The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. The way the scenery falls into place as you delve into the mountain is inspired. It looks like how I always imagined the adventure games would be before I'd even seen a computer adventure game. But good old Dead Tree paperback books are back too. Scholistic have been releasing both old classics and brand new titles, introducing a whole new generation, my own kids included, to the joys of adventures where they are the hero, trekking through fantastical landscapes with just their skill, stamina and luck to rely on. Plus the five-finger bookmark, of course. In an era of jaw-dropping computer games, there's still something magical and absorbing about game books. The future's bright and, metaphorically at least, it has a green spine. Turn to 400. Hello there, fellow grognards. Fabio Volono here. I'm known as Fabio Volono1 on Twitter and Fabio V on Discord. Dirk has asked me to talk about my first, my last and my everything. After much consideration, my first is Dungeons and Dragons. My last is the D-Sanction and my everything is Call of Cthulhu. So there you have it. Thank you very much. Cup of tea. Oh, yes, please. What are you doing? Uh, telling the Grognard Files my first, last and everything. Oh, OK. Seemed a bit short, to be honest. So how did you get into role-playing games anyway? As a kid, I played with Airfix soldiers in the 60s and 70s. And then later, I discovered Michael's Models in North Finchley. They had a wargaming section, and that's where I bought some Napoleonic miniatures. And later on, some fantasy miniatures were available, made by minifigs set in Middle-earth and the Valley of the Four Winds. At the same time, I started collecting Military Modelling Magazine, which had a small section dedicated to wargaming. Some issues later, I started seeing adverts for Dungeons and & Dragons, and found out it was a fantasy role-playing game. My love for Tolkien's Middle-earth 
and Marvel's comics Conan the Barbarian inspired me to track down this shop in Hammersmith known as Games Workshop. As I first entered this mecca of gaming, I was taken aback by this amazing cabinet of beautifully painted miniatures and a prop model of Moon Base Alpha from the TV series Space 1999. After a few visits and constantly staring at the amazing minis in the cabinet, I got to know Tim Olson, the manager of Games Workshop, and we quickly became firm friends, and I'm pleased to say we still are to this day. I had some really fun times there. We talked about films, music, and obviously role-playing games and miniatures. We used to have the schoolboys come in from Latimer School, just round the corner, who were coming into the shop to buy games, but mostly miniatures. I got to know them very well too, along with Paul and Ricky, Tim's younger brother. One of the funniest things that happened back then was when the staff wrapped up one of the schoolboys in packing tape and just left him. He was a shop regular and a friend, and he's also still our friend today. It was here in Games Workshop that I was recommended at the time to a new band called Marillion, which I became a huge fan of, and I went to see them play many times. Another incident I recall was one day as I pulled up outside the shop on my motorbike, a couple of policemen were leaving the shop. I asked him what was going on, and he told me a few of the guys were playing Killer by Steve Jackson Games. This was a role-playing game about assassination, but was more of a LARP game, really. One of the players had brought a toy gun. In those days, they weren't painted or moulded in fluorescent yellow or orange plastic and looked real. So after an assassination in the park, they ran away and headed back to the shop. Obviously, a few members of the public were very concerned about someone waving a gun around and reported it to the police and informed them that they had gone into the game shop in Dalling Road. So poor Tim had to explain to the police that it wasn't a real gun and no one had been shot and it was a live role-playing game. The police warned him that this shouldn't happen again and so Killer was never played in or around the shop again. Tim thankfully liked my miniature painting skills, so I had a few of my minis on show in the hallowed cabinet in the shop. I also encouraged and gave painting tips to Tim, so he also had some miniatures on display in the cabinet too. On one occasion, he informed me that White Dwarf had done an interview with him and sent down a photographer to take pictures of some of those miniatures. And they'd included ours in the photo shoot. When that issue of White Dwarf came out, Issue 69, I was delighted to see my name in print and a photo of our minis on the accompanying page. Alas, with all good things, it all came to an end when Tim, who was a keystone to the shop during that period, left for America. After that, Games Workshop started to concentrate more on Warhammer, which ultimately led to getting rid of of all the role-playing, war games and board games. This was also reflected in the role-playing content being omitted in White Dwarf. 
So my love of White Dwarf waned after issue 100, as did my regular trips to Games Workshop in Dalling Road. I will always remember the shop, Tim and all the gang fondly. This was where I discovered my first Dungeons and Dragons and also the Lovecraftian horrors of Call of Cthulhu, my everything, along with the rich Glaranthian setting of RuneQuest, not to mention the many miniatures. I still have a little bit of the shop in my own home, namely a few miniatures from that cabinet. But funnily enough, not the ones I actually painted. I also have a beautiful brown dragon by Asgard Miniatures, which sat on the shelf by the counter. As one door closes, another one opens. And with the decline of the Halcyon days of Games Workshop, another games shop, very local to me, opened up. And that was Leisure Games in Finchley Central, North London, in 1985. This new shop replaced Games Workshop for me. Since they stopped all the different role-playing games and miniatures that Games Workshop had now scrapped. It was here that I discovered Fiasco, which was the first of the indie RPGs. In 2010, one of the staff organised some mini Fiasco gaming days, which I thoroughly enjoyed and got to meet and play a couple of games with Ian Cooper, Chaosium's line editor for Quest Worlds. During the beginning months of lockdown in 2020, severely missing sitting around the table with friends, I became more active on Twitter, especially the RPG and miniature community. I found Mr Cooper and immediately friended him. One day in December 2020, I read a post from Ian about a podcast called The Grognard Files. I don't listen to podcasts and I thought I never would. However, solely on his enthusiastic post, I decided to have a listen and oh my God, did I fall down a rabbit hole of delightful nostalgia. Laughing out loud and the discovery of a wonderful RPG community that resonated with my own generation. I binge listen to every episode of the Grognard Files whilst painting minis. After a few months, I had caught up to the present day podcasts. This then led me on to listening to other podcasts, such as Orlanthe's Rex's Gaming Vexes, the hilarious Frankenstein RPG, The Smart Party, Thinking Critically, and very recently, Titterpigs, all highly recommended. Also, after a few drinks, you can catch me on the online pub at Michester Arms on Friday night. Leisure Games is still run by the same family, and I still shop there now, and these days I often help out when any of the staff are on holiday or may be sick. Historically, I also play and run RPGs in there some evenings too. I also work for them at conventions too, so you can see me every April at Salute, which is the biggest wargaming convention in Europe, and also at Dragon Meet in December. 2010, I had a message 
from someone I hadn't heard from for many, many years, and that was Tim. He informed me he was going to get the gang back together like the Blues Brothers, and we met up at the Salutation Pub, which was our local watering hole in those days. We got together with just a few members missing. Yes, we were older, but thankfully the flock wallpaper of the Salutation had gone for a more modern environment. We had a most wonderful night, and now we have an annual and the odd occasion, a couple of meets a year. So, as with the Grognard Files, I listen to nostalgic gaming and meet with old friends and now meet with new ones from around the world. A big thank you to Dirk the Dice and his partner in crime, the rules lawyer Blythe. Thank you again for your considerable contribution to the gaming community. In 2017, I decided with my wife to start up a small miniatures business, Morgue Miniatures, specialising in unusual miniatures for RPG and tabletop gaming that I wanted to have. So our first range was specifically Undead, which we then used crowdfunding for further ranges. We just launched another small range of Undead on Kickstarter, which hopefully will reach our goal. As with all good stories, I must come to an end. With my entry into the Grognard squad this year, I found a new and wonderful community of my peers. I started to play more RPGs via online platforms, such as Roll20 and Foundry. So this brings me to my last, which was a couple of nights ago when I entered 1960s Vietnam via the fall of Delta Green, my first foray in this game setting. But my proper last is the lovely indie RPG of Elizabethan investigation of the D-Sanction, where I've played quite a few games in the past couple of months. Oh, I think your tea's gone cold. Grogglebox! Welcome to the room of role-playing rumbling. I'm joined by Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. We're in a vast, empty space to return once again to uh, discuss role-playing games and... Role-playing games? Really? Role-playing games. Really? For a change. For a change. Yeah. (laughs) And it's the uh, Gogglebox segment where we discuss something that we've watched together. Mm. So we'll come on to that in a moment. But this weekend, I'm still in recovery from our weekend of role-playing. We played face-to-face with we real people. We went to the Albert Convention and played played with real people. Yeah. In the real room. And real dice and everything. Drunk beer with real people. Drunk beer with real people, yeah. 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 Incredible. Yeah. Incredible experience. Yeah. <laughs> They're gone forever. And it, and it was strange, wasn't it, in the run-up to it, preparing for it you kind of felt I, I don't know if I remember how to do this yeah I certainly felt a bit, it's weird really I felt slightly I mean you, you sometimes feel I was a bit edgy before a convention game even you know I was playing with people I knew so you know, I didn't didn't worry about that kind of thing but you, you always feel a little bit edgy don't you think is it going to work and yeah. more so this time because you thought oh, I'm not I've not done this for you know nearly two years uh, yeah, yeah. Will will all the will the training kick in? You know, you get used to doing it online. Well, actually, <laughs> and and more to the point as well, because for me, it's an interesting thing. 
uh, over the last two years or so, well, but longer than two years, uh, I've run a lot of free league stuff. It's the first time I ran free league face to face. So you did Vason, didn't you? I did Vason, yeah. Um, is that your press? I'm sure. Vason. Um, and I've run lots of stuff. You know, we've played lots of stuff, haven't we? Free league stuff. I realise it's the first time I've run or played it face to face. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great game. It, um, because you, no maths involved with uh, no basically. maths I like that yeah just roll yeah just get a six on a pool of dice yeah, and the maths is relatively simple two damage maybe three damage alright okay easy, you know, easy you, to do you're not adding up pips no you're not adding up lots of numbers and, and all that kind of thing um, yeah. so it runs quite smoothly I, I suppose the thing about face to face play it ran, it did it does run a lot smoother doesn't it you, that's kind of obvious thing to say, isn't it? This, but when you've been away from it for so long, you realise how um, a little bit like my uh, comments in an old podcast about hating initiative. You know, I said I hate initiative. Well, Vason has an initiative system, a little bit like Savage Worlds. You give out cards, you dish out cards. You don't dish them out every round. Dish them out at the beginning, and it went very, very smoothly. But that's just around the table, isn't it? My uh, hatred of initiative. I wonder it probably comes from online play where it's a bit clunkier, isn't it? And a bit more, everyone rolls immediately and it disappears off the screen on the chat thing. You think, oh, hang on, why am I doing it? was around the table, it was just very, very smooth. Yeah. I've, uh, I'm a proponent for playing online. I've always enjoyed playing online. And we were playing online before the pandemic, weren't well, we? Well, of course, that's what I mean by free league. I've been running free league games for probably about... Three or four years, but, but it's always been online. But you, what you have when you play at the table, I thought, was energy. And that was the bit that I'd forgotten that you have around the table. You've got the player's energy. And as a GM, you're instilling more energy. And it's more enjoyable to hear that kind of over-talking and the kind of yeah. interaction between people that you do lose when everybody's uh, on mute and then there's like this kind of ritual of whose turn it is to speak and that kind of thing, which is very polite and everything and might be appropriate for uh, an office meeting, but there's something exciting about it, people having little side chats and things like that. um, Yeah, there is. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing goes on. There's a bit more player interactions, a bit easier. Um, I just think from a games mastering perspective, managing it is, is easy as well because... You know, people, you know, they reach for their dice and you go, right, okay. You know, you can kind of look at them and go, okay, give me a roll, look at them. And, you know, instead of online where sometimes we've got, oh, oh me, oh, right, me. Oh, you want me to roll? Okay, yeah, yeah. Because, okay. of course, around the table, you've got all the, you can look at people and body language and all those little factors factor yeah. in, don't they, to make it just easy. Let me, just let me click this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't forget to fill in the dialogue. But all oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I put the modifiers in. When many yeah. modifiers are in it? Yeah. You don't have any of that? You just get on with yeah, it. People just. And I like with the free leases. People just grabbed a pool of dice and made a pool of dice out of what they got and the bonuses. And it's yeah. kind of very very easy. It's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable conversation. This isn't it really? What we're trying to what we're trying to just we're just defying real life. <laughs> we're just defying like existence here. And it's like, hey, guess what? Playing with real people around the table is so much easier. Like, what are we talking about? Of course it is. Yeah. One of the things that I regret coming back mm. is we went down to Leamington Spa for the Alberta Wizard staff on the train, which was, uh, yeah. it was a good journey and everything. Yeah. However, I was carrying a load of stuff. Gamer's back is back. Gamer's back is back. Yeah. I am stiff in parts. I didn't realise it could be stiff in <laughs>
Honestly, if I move in a certain direction. Yeah, the luggage factor of paraphernalia. Well, you do the paraphernalia, I don't do it, you say. You know, I don't do it. Well, it's that thing of a comfort blanket, isn't it? So yeah. I took all the rule books for playing Fighting Fantasy, and we'll perhaps talk about that a little bit later in a bit more detail. But Fighting Fantasy, I took like the main books, and I thought, well, I don't actually need the Black Sand book. I won't take that. And of course, I did need that one. It had the, <laughs> you did need, yeah. It had the naval battle stuff in, which is <laughs> like the central part of it. So I ended up working from a PDF for the actual rule book that I really needed. Yeah. Everything else was just peripheral and I was lugging <laughs> it around and it was very heavy I refused to take the vase and rule book out of the house because it's so beautiful Yeah, I, I, it just needs an arm guard if it has to move it had to be, I had to put it as a PDF on a tablet can't, cannot <laughs> the funny thing was no, all the players had the rule book no one had brought the rule book for the same reason because they all thought it was a really beautiful thing that they can't risk transporting it around the country <laughs> I am less precious about these things than you but maybe that's another depends thing. on the game some, some rule books yeah I'm not too precious about but the version one is, is so beautiful that you just think I can't I can't risk this getting teased uh, dollars <laughs> at a convention yeah. coffee goes over it or it's damaged in my bag I can't just cannot I can't allow it to happen or uh, somebody drops a pea from a samosa, because that's the famous thing about oh, yeah. Albert the Wizard staff. Yeah, yeah. Samosas at the lunch. Samosa lunch, yeah. So you wouldn't want to wake up with a pea in your... In your uh, rule book. Rule book. You wouldn't. Or oh, anything, really, I suppose. <laughs> but, but, yeah, particularly a, a much-treasured rule book, you know. <laughs> okay, so this uh, part of the uh, podcast is the... Groggle box, and it's where we've watched something together. Now, we've had Ian Livingstone on for the last couple of episodes. So what I thought we'd do is look at an old regional programme called South of Watford. Mm -hmm. Now, this is on the YouTube, if you want to uh, try and find it. I urge you to go and watch it. It is fantastic. (laughs) It's a piece of... Uh, history, isn't it? It's, yes. a, it's an archive of our hobby. Yeah. It captures 1984, a period in time, um, and it's a wonderful thing to watch. Spend half an hour watching that. It is brilliant. Yeah, it's funny. It, it, it's fascinating, funny, and I perhaps a little frustrating as well. Which is, <laughs> we'll come on to that maybe. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it encapsulates all those things. I think. So south of Watford, uh, in, for people who don't uh, realise, is a regional television programme. We used to have a lot of them, didn't we, back in the day? Um, and it was produced for uh, the London weekend television. Yeah, yeah. London. Yeah, London area. So um, the idea is, if you're north of Watford, the idea is it, it, you're up north, and you're in northern England. The Watford Gap. Yeah. The Watford Gap is the service station mm. that marks... Supposedly, marks the north. The north, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really. No. Anyway, south of that is the region in which this uh, program uh, covered, and there's one on fantasy games, and it's all about. The first half of it is all about tabletop games, and the second half is all about ra- live action role playing yeah. from Treasure Trap. And I'm going to say it again, it is brilliant. <laughs> Um, it, I love the opening. First time, it starts off with the, it could have been more 80s, I hope. <laughs> Tight credits, yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah. The motorway coming at me like a video game, and then it's like a, a, a scrambled scene, isn't it? Yeah. Of uh, digitally manipulated images <laughs> of <laughs> flyovers. Yeah. 
Yeah. What is that supposed to mean? I do not know. No. But, yeah. And then there's a young Ben Elson. Yeah, this Ben is, Elton, isn't yeah. it, who presents it, which in itself is kind of interesting, I suppose. He's a prickly character, I think. Yeah. He's quite... I think in the first half, we'll come on to the live-action role-play, but in the first half of it, which is about tabletop role-playing, he is immediately dismissive, I think. I yeah. think he's immediately dismissive. He comes at it from a slightly eye-rolly yeah. pers- it, perspective of, oh, here we go. You it, know. it definitely does, and whether this is uh, conscious or unconscious, it, when he sets it up, he says, right, you might be bored with your existence. Yeah. You may find yourself uh, being an uninspiring person. Mm. Well, why don't you take on a role um, to, in, a, in a game where you can be adventurous and exciting? Us at South of Watford are not like that. We're not bored of our existence or unexciting. Yeah. However, we've gone to look at these games. Yeah. All right, okay. Oh, thanks a lot. So yeah. Ben. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot. So, yeah. So the story starts in one of the store, doesn't it? He looks yes. at something. He, he says, yeah, that all started with talking. Yeah, yeah, did but, it. Anyway, won't get into that one. Not sure about that, Ben. Fair, amateur error, isn't it? All starts with talking. Sure it does. But you, but you can go to Glorantha and yeah, kill yeah. dwarves yeah. and goblins. Yeah. Powers and perils. But he's quite dismissive. He, yeah. he is, if you, when you watch it, he's quite, again, he's instantly dismissive because what he does, he, he gets the games off the shelf, doesn't he? He's in Dalian yeah. Road and he gets the game. He says, you, you can do this and fight monsters and goblins or you can play this and fight monsters and goblins or you can get this and fight monsters and goblins. And he says, oh, you get the idea. Kind of dismisses the whole... Wall, and it, to, to our eyes, even even now, to our eyes, that wall of games is impressive. Yeah. But, I mean, in 1984, we probably passed out. Yeah. If we walked into that shop and seen all those games, it probably would have needed the smelling salts. But Ben just dismisses them, doesn't he? Yeah. He just, he just, oh, you get the idea. They say, they're all the same. Yeah, all he might as well say, they're all the looking same, these games. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, well, these daft games are all the same. And she, okay, all right, I'll, per- I'll persevere with this, you know. So he opens up and he says that the biggest selling one is Dungeons and Dragons and at that time it was selling 40,000 in the UK alone. So they're expecting it's the Mensa box set he opens up. Yeah, yeah. You get some funny shaped dice and I won't do an impression. Uh, funny shaped dice <laughs> and a rule book. Yeah, yeah. And he makes the old comment about it's, it, it wears the board, this is unusual, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. And then he's, then he's sat with Ian Livingstone. Ian yeah, Livingstone, who does the spiel about, yeah, this is what the game actually is. Yeah. And it culminates, it, I think it has that uh, moment, doesn't it, where he says it's actually quite complicated. He I does think. say that. That is interesting, actually, isn't it? He does say, you see, that, that surprised me that because people always say, Oh no, it's not as complicated as it looks. But actually, in Livingstone says, "Well, it is kind of complicated. It is yeah. complicated." <laughs> so the sales pitches, these look complicated. Yeah, they are. Oh, well, Baldwin. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of an odd. It is an odd thing to say because are they complicated? We, we're not the best people to comment on whether role playing games are complicated. Because I suppose we, they we've were been playing them so long, but they were they were complicated. They were cons- even if the rules were complicated, they were conceptually complicated. Weren't they to get your head around it? But he is kind of honest about that, isn't he? And says, yeah. You know, Ben Elton said, it looks, it looks quite complicated. And he says, well, it is. It is. <laughs> oh, right, you weren't expecting that. But the best way to find out how to do it is to actually play it. Yeah. And this is the gold. This is the gold where 
uh, he, he has to choose a character. So uh, yeah. Ian Livingstone is Anvar, the face splitter, yeah. and uh, Steve Jackson as a wizard. He's a wizard, isn't he? And then he's asked to pick a character. Yeah, and he, he goes for a dwarf, doesn't he? Well, well he, describes, he, he describes himself as an intelligent TV presenter. Right. Well, what's that got to do with anything? <laughs> what's that got to do with anything? Because ten minutes ago you said it's about pretending you're someone else. <laughs> Stupid thing to say. Well, why? What character can I play? Hmm. Well, I'm an intelligent, <laughs> modest. I'm intelligent and modest TV presenter. Well, that's so what? It's Dungeons and Dragons. You're not twigs yet that they don't love TV. You're in a dungeon. He goes for dwarf, doesn't he? He just goes, he goes for dwarf. He's got a beard. And then they say a very strange thing, which, to my mind, to <laughs> guarantee, they say, "Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, Ben, but you've, you've got a quite a short beard." And lady dwarves have short beards. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're going in early with the. You're going lady, in early with the lady, lady beard dwarf yeah, thing, you, aren't you? You've gone, gone, gone in early, early, early with that. But you, you're going to put people off with that, aren't you? You just get into it. Hey, I'll be a dwarf. And then you correct them by going, oh, yes, well, you, you want to be a dwarf, but you'll have to be a lady dwarf, I'm afraid. Yeah. But, but then, but it doesn't have to be a lady dwarf. In fact, he's got a beard blinking irrelevant. <laughs> what was it? It's all irrelevant. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to go, well, I'm. I'm, I'm six foot five. Oh, he can't be a hobbit then. Well, you can. What are you talking about? It, it, it's a bit toe curling to watch the whole thing because it's it's awkward. It's just there's an awkwardness to it. But isn't it always, isn't it always that difficulty of trying to present the hobby to other people yes, who don't yes, know it? Yeah. And you're right. It is awkward, and it kind of it, it, I, I think it doesn't help that throughout it. And we'll get on to them actually playing the game. Throughout it, Ben Elton's kind of antagonistic about it. Yeah, he's coming from yeah. a position of, yeah. well, what the hell's this? It sounds ridiculous. Yeah. And that kind of undermines the, uh, the thing of it. So. Yeah, it does. And I, I know what you mean. I, I suppose it's a good example with the dwarf and the beard thing. It's a good example of, we've all probably guilty of doing this, to be fair. Of when you're trying to explain the hobby to someone, you're trying to make it, you're keen to make it sound engaging and interesting. And maybe you think that that fact that lady dwarves, hey, lady dwarves have beards, people who are not into the hobby will go, oh, really? How interesting. Yeah. When in actual fact, people might go, God, you are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's get into this. Now you've curveballed maybe that one. And it, I think that is one of the problems, isn't it, with role play? Everyone, people who are really heavily into it, like us, pitch it to people and then come out with something that that person might think is really weird or daft, but we don't think it's weird or daft yeah. because yeah. we think, we think, oh, this is kind of interesting, you know. Because I think we, we used to do it with things like RuneQuest, didn't we? We, we would say to people, oh, get them into RuneQuest, right? And we'd say things like, well, you, you can be like a warrior and fight monsters and all that kind of thing. And they might go, oh, yeah, they're getting into it. And then we'd say things like, and of course there's the gods, you join a cult, and you da 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 And then suddenly maybe they're thinking, oh, hang I on. I don't want to get too you, deep into you've gone, You've lost me a bit now. You've gone, but to our mind, that was all part of the fun. So but, yeah. it's, difficult, it's difficult to pitch. And there's a feeling, I think, with the beard thing that they do that. It's almost like they've seen a little opportunity to, hey, it's not as simple as you think, Ben. There's sort of things going on here you may not be aware of. So we, but we actually, it, it, yeah. it don't really work. <laughs> it don't work we out cut, like that. We cut. 
we cut to uh, Albi he's going to be the games master yes, yeah. and of course he's got exotic symbols playing behind him Albi he looks like he looks like a member of Blondie He's kind of cool, doesn't he? He's got this like stringy tie on and everything. He's like he's a guitarist from Blonde Blondie. What's going yeah. on? Either that or he stepped from the local jazz club. Just yeah, to... <laughs> a jazz club or a new wave band. <laughs> oh, you're the games master. Okay. <laughs> so, so he comes along and he's uh, drawing the dungeon and he explains that he's going to play all the parts yeah. that they're playing characters and not going to play yeah. a play, and they've got it mapped out on the table. And of course, Ben is the most annoying player you've ever played with. Yeah, yeah. all boiled into one, isn't he? he? He huffs and puffs a bit. It looks like he's huffing and puffing a bit, doesn't he? Yeah. And, yeah. and he does that thing that every, everybody does who, who is like that. Grabs over his figure and says, Right, well, I'm going to here. And everybody's going, No, 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 you can't just do that. But you said I could do anything. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to barge into it. Right, this is what you see. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it. <laughs> He does, yeah. Yeah, he wants to move his figure. Oh, no, no, no. You know, movement rate, check for traps, that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So they they have a game, and uh, it concludes with him being captured. He's captured, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and he says that all over the country, elves are being captured. Yeah. So in the meantime, why don't you play fighting fantasy games? And he plays a fighting fantasy. I mean, even the... um, I suppose that the game itself, he goes in a room, doesn't he? Ben Elton's character goes in a room and there's a mirror. And in the, out of the mirror steps a reflection of his own character and starts to fight him. Even that, you think, are you selling it here? Yeah. A little weird encounter, maybe, for people who've never played it before. I don't know. But isn't this the difficult thing, again, with the representation of the hobby, that it all takes part in our heads, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it's a hobby that takes part in our head. So how do you depict it so that people yeah. understand it? I mean, that was the thing. I mean, we can talk later about it, you know, uh, critical role and how it's got all the people now. But then it was all about that representation, and it's. I still, I still feel it's um, there's something lost. It's the kind of thing yeah. that. I, I don't want to see myself doing yes. it. There are lots of things I do that I don't, <laughs> I don't want to see myself doing. Yeah. Yeah. And role-playing is one of them. And I think it, it is that problem of actually seeing it when it's all yeah. taking place. I, I, you're right. That, that's definitely the case. When you watch the game um, in this programme, it, it looks awkward and strange, even as people who've been doing this for a long, long time. To watch people doing it seems strange, just because you're right. Once you're playing a game, you're engaged in it, aren't you? You know, you're engaged in it and you're enjoying it, and you've kind of lost. You know, I mean, I, I get this from uh, for Mrs. Blythe and the kids when I'm playing online. They'll they'll chuckle to me. Oh, listen to you, listen to you. You know, yeah. and of course I'm thinking, what do you mean, listen to me? What are you talking about? Because they're just hearing. I mean, for kickoff, they're only hearing one end of a conversation, but I think even that aside, um, they'd probably think this sounds strange, but in my head, it's not strange, is it? You know, and that, that, yeah, you're right, that comes across, you know, watching this, because it's, it's, I mean, again, we don't want to get drawn into the actual play critical role discussion, but, but they're very polished and not really like playing it. They're not really normal games, but this is a normal game. You know, it's Ian Livingstone, Steve Jackson now before it. It's still a ordinary game like 
like you or I might have played that really. Yeah. 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 And you know, the when they're presented now it's much more of a narration, isn't it? This is just a kind of pragmatic moving the yeah. characters yeah. around. So next bit again is a moment of gold where they actually a snapshot of the shop and Tim Olson, who we've uh, interviewed yeah. on this, yeah. this yeah. very program, is uh, interviewed as a thing, and he describes the excitable members of the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. excitable customers as frothers. Yeah. They froth at the mouth when they turn up <laughs> and explain that. And they do, they do that, yeah, they, it sounds like they do that nice, this, this is quite a nice scene where, and it's probably staged, but some young lad comes in, doesn't yeah. he, and says, uh, uh, I need seven giant rats. Yeah. He says, does he seven rats? He goes, giant ones? Or normal? He says, giant please. We only got three, will that do? He says, yeah, I suppose that'll have to do. And there's some seven heads. Seven so heads. going seven heads? Uh, orcs or humans? Uh, humans please. You know, and it, it's just kind of staged, but it is, it is very funny. It's very funny to watch. Yeah, seven heads. Oh yeah, I've got seven of those. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and um, then there's the interview with Tari Higgins, who's like a, a super fan. Yes. Yeah. Room RuneQuest player. RuneQuest. Right. He's yeah. got a Humacti. Yeah. A Rune Lord. <laughs> with a gay ass that he can only use a sword. Yeah. And only wear armour in certain parts of his body. And he's got a series of followers. That's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Discussion about you know, about the female follower, yeah, a bit like in a relationship with a yeah. NPC, really. Who's <laughs> quite cute? He says she's, yeah. she's quite cute. as NPC. You're okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's I don't know. Is it unfair in a way? It's TV. Is it unfair? Is it you know? Are they in Dally Road talking to people and they happen on him and go, "Here we go. This is the one." Yeah, this is the one. This know. is this is a frother in full. This flight. is a frother. We've we've got one here, and it, and you know how many people did they talk to? You know, perfectly reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it were okay, or maybe a bit shy. Didn't talk like that, or yeah. But he he goes full on full on throth, doesn't he? About full the whole thing, and you do wonder. Yeah, okay. And it's a, I I think and this this be interesting. We're going to talk about the LARPing bit in a minute, aren't we? But yeah. to bear this in mind, I do think that first half is actually an attempt to ridicule it. Yeah. It is an attempt to ridicule it. It's a bit of a... You can imagine these, you know, trendy London media types in the 80s decide they're going to cover this because it's, cause it's popular and interesting. So it's interesting to cover. But they are mocking. They are mocking yeah. of it. There is mockery. And when, when he comes on, that, that fellow with his Galantha stuff... You just think, yeah, you've just got the right one there, haven't you, to yeah. betray us as, as a bunch of, you know. It's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, I uh, watched um, Dungeon Masters uh, yeah. back in, it came out in 2008. And at the time, um, I wasn't role-playing at that point, you know, I was still just about throwing out at that point, uh, coming out of the deep freeze. And Dungeon Masters, I think, is quite a sensitive depiction of the hobby. But I know that other people think differently. They mm. think that it is ridiculing. It's like looking at them, uh, looking at people who participate in role-playing as the other. Yeah. And there's something... Think, and there's always that risk, isn't there? Yeah, you can... It's easy, I suppose it's easy to ridicule. But 
I don't know, as, as a TV programme, it is, um, let's say, fascinating, but also frustrating to watch that first half because they are having a bit of a subtle go at it. You know, yeah. it's, they, they don't overtly say that, but it, it's just the whole manner of it is to have a bit of a go at it. Yeah. And I'd say the other, the other, go on, sorry. No, you go on. The, the other fascinating thing as well is they don't explain character sheets. No. And actually, none of it really makes sense with that character sheet. It doesn't really explain, like, what, you know, if you're watching that, you would think, yeah. how do you, they touch, on att- they touch on attributes, but they actually shorten them. Yeah. They don't really explain what... Yeah, they don't yeah. explain that, as the, the, which is the central part of the mechanic. If Ben yeah. Elwin loves his carriage sheet, so they've got this sheet and it's got all my details on what I need to roll. It might have made a bit more sense, but they just don't do yeah. that at all. So if, you do, if you're uninitiated, you might think, yeah. what do they decide on but, anything? But coming back to that idea of representation and, uh, and you know... How, how do we look? How do others see us? Is the uh, yeah, 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 or, or at least um, when it was a kind of marginal hobby. I mean, I think it's probably a bit more mainstream now um, than it was. But I remember. Do you remember college when we were a bait and trap fell into? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Thing. So we were asked to appear on yeah. a video about hobbies. Yes. By um, by one of the other students. Yes. And he, he interviewed us and asked us questions and we were enthusiastically talking about yes. it. And we may have even, we may have even covered, uh, women dwarves with beards. We were that carried away. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? You said you, you get carried away. That's kind of what I mean. It's hard to explain to other people because when you get carried away, you end up saying things that, you know, you might be winning them over and then suddenly they go, hang on, what? What did he just say? You know. And his questioning kind of moved on to like torture. And, yeah. uh, it, you know, uh, it, it, it went Summoning into, demons. Summoning demons. Summoning demons, that kind of thing. Yeah. And when we saw the video, when the video came out, it was titled Devil Games. Devil. <laughs> and we had a red filter on us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the <laughs> caption said, uh, Devil Gamers. Yeah, Devil Gamers. With our names. Yeah. Guilty as charged. Yeah. Of course, he went on to be a wedding singer. The guy who did that. Yeah, he's laughing now. Yeah, yeah. He's been tired. He's asked us about torture. He's been torturing people at wedding receptions for years, <laughs> singing Michael Bublé songs. <laughs> um, okay, so the second half of it yeah. is LARP because yeah. you know, as somebody says in it, eventually everybody wants to get to the point where they're hitting each other with a rubber sword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it a step. It's like taking a step further, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So he's in the back of a transit van with a group of um, civil yeah. engineers and uh, other... Um, yes. Always keen, always keen, in any, in any uh, documentary about uh, live-action role-playing, they, they always love to find people who are solicitors or quantity surveyors <laughs> and also a half-orc assassin in the spare time. It's yeah. just funnier. It's funnier than, yeah, what do you do? I'm unemployed. Because some people go, well, of course he dresses up as a half-orc assassin. There's nothing bad to do. But they love, they love the, um, yes, you're a, oh, you're a quantity surveyor. Oh, you're a brain surgeon, are you? And you do this at the weekend. Oh, that's funny. They do that, don't they? I always ask people, what do you do in real life? You know? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they're all uh, dressed up uh, explaining their various roles. Yes, there's an elf. There's a guy dressed as an elf, isn't there? Yeah. He's pointy ears and got a bit of gold makeup on his face and a headband. Yeah, it's not, that's a, 
doesn't does, does he look like an elf I don't know I've never met one but yeah he does quite a good job and there is a guy in a, like a half like he's a half arc assassin because he's got like a piggy nose hasn't he yeah. he says I'm an assassin he's a bugbear slayer yeah something like that yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a woman dressed, girl dressed as a Looks like a warrior barbarian type. And there's another fella who is waiting to the service station to get changed because the guy in the van hire shop um, doesn't like them turning up in costume. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and they do have the conversation with the guy who dresses the elf who says, oh, I know, I just leave the house. I leave the house. He's dressed like that. Yeah, I get get on the bus. Go to the bus stop, get get on the bus, meet them here, get in the van. A donut and a cup of tea. Well, no, I can't have a donut because it ruins the makeup. (laughs) And then we get into uh, Treasure Trap. Incredibly noisy, isn't it? Everybody's shouting. Yeah. But I, do you know what? And this is a really interesting thing about the the Treasure Trap LARPing thing. When they're in that transit van, they're like a force of nature. The guy who's dressed as an elf yeah. just sort of stares down Ben Elwood. In, in as much as it's a bit like, this is a man dressed as an elf, right? Yeah. Plastic ears, golden makeup on his face and a you know, cloak his mum's made, right? And surely that's dafter than what you've been doing with Ian Livingstone. Yeah. But he's like a force of nature, that fella. There's no, he just says, this is what I do. Yeah, it's a bit, a bit of a kind of screw you, Ben Elton. Yeah. I'm not apologising for this. This is what I do. I leave the house, and when I'm when I'm here, I'm a, I'm a, a whatever wood elf, a high elf. I'm an elven magic user. That's what I am. It's a bit of a kind of if you don't like it, hard luck. Yeah, it's kind of unapologetic for it. Yeah, it is. You know, yeah. whereas the Ian Livingstone bit is they're almost they're not apologising for it, but they're trying to convince him it's a good idea. Whereas those people in the van, I don't think they give a toss. What he thinks. What he thinks. No. And, and that is quite an astonishing, for me, because you imagine surely the LARPers are more open to ridicule. But I don't, I don't think they give him an in to ridicule. No. no. I really don't think they do. And I found that fascinating. There's, there's no real scope for him to roll his eyes because they, they don't care. Yeah. They do not care. A good luck to them. That's what I say. Good luck to them. So we actually see it in action, don't we? And uh, you know, the various uh, monsters with papa mache heads uh, yes. clobbered. Yeah. Yeah. And like I say, very noisy. Very noisy, it's like chaotic. Double, 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 double. Yeah, no, like, well, everyone's shouting. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone really know what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> they don't really know what's going on. They get Ben Elton involved, don't they? He dresses yeah. up and he gets He quite involved. enjoys that, I think. He quite enjoys it, and I suppose, you know, maybe he's more charitable to them because, uh, you know, the extra arm student, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it's a bit like drama, so maybe he's a bit more charitable to them, perhaps. It's less of a cerebral pursuit, isn't it? It's not like loads of rule books sitting around the table. It's it's a bit more, I yeah. don't know. Maybe it's, it's, a, maybe it's easier to get your head around in, yeah. in a strange way. In a strange way, I suppose, so it's more televisual as well, so yes. a bit more gung ho about it. Yeah. But my favourite is the um, conversation with the woman who's uh, behind the uh, the (laughs) cafe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one who says, yeah, she says, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, they're coming here telling me they've been killed by a demon, you know, they're coming here, they've been killed by a demon or a hobgoblin. And I just said, do you want milk and coffee, love? (laughs) (laughs) I like the other guy as well who who decided, again, he's one of these where he's a, 
So the economist is up there, an accountant, and they say, what do you do in real life? And he says, I do this in real life. What I do in the fantasy world is I have to deal with numbers and accounts and things like that. It's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's reality. All that, all that stuff I have to do for a job is just a fantasy world. <laughs> and then it finishes with uh, the, lots of dogs barking in yeah, there were big fights outside and all these dogs come from nowhere and start getting all excited running around, which is kind of quite funny to watch, isn't it? You know. And Ellen gets killed, doesn't he? He gets, yeah. gets killed by a, a nan. Is it a nan? A yeah. nan in a, in a mill. Yeah, yeah, some with a big paper mache head on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think it convinced me to want to do LARPing. I don't think it convinced me to want to do it. I thought, no, I'm still not sure it's for me. But I have to say, it's it very interesting as a, as a programme of two halves the bit that you would think is more open to ridicule actually those closes him down a bit I don't think he can really ridicule it no. and you have to come away from it thinking good on you it's what so you want to do you know you do it so we're approached right by a television company yeah. who want to do something for the one show yeah, depicting yeah. Um, role playing as it is today yeah what would be in it what would you feature on it um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to do. I mean, what? How would you? Like you say, would you? I mean, if you filmed, if you filmed a game, would you start from the position of showing critical role in full floor? No. See, that's the thing. I, I was immediately thought of that and think immediately think no because it's not true, is it? It's not real. That's not really how you play these games. No, but say. presenting it to a, a, a mainstream audience, not a hobbyist audience, but yeah, to say this is a this yeah. is something that's happening in the country at yeah. the moment. Would you not be tempted to look at how they're doing it? Because suppose you'd look at it, but I I, I don't know. I, it's difficult, isn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, as we've just been discussing, if you film an average game, if you film an average game, even with like good players and good games master it would come across as a bit weird and a bit odd because, as you said, you're on the outside looking in. But then I, I, I do take the view, if you, if you filmed Critical Role, that's just, that's just a false impression. Yeah. I mean, to what extent? I mean, because let's face it, then you do see this on Twitter. Do you see this on Twitter? And I'm not just pointing the finger at Critical Role. There are other podcasts, actual players do the same thing. They're very polished, very, you know, everyone's doing the voices, everything's very polished. You do get people on Twitter who are worried about being a games master or worried about playing because they can't live up to that. Yeah. And that, I think that is a problem when you think, you know, you see, I'm not going to say young people, but I think probably is younger people. Go, oh, well, I, I'm going to be games mastering soon. We're DMing soon. I'm really worried about it, really nervous about it. Yeah. Uh, and you think, well, to what extent? I mean, sometimes they, they will say it does come from watching those, actual, listening to those or watching those actual players and thinking, well, I can't do it like that. That's how, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. And I can't do it like that. Therefore, I, I'm worried about it. So if you're going to depict the hobby, I'm not sure. I take the point, filming an average game would look odd, but I think filming those kind of actual players is, is slightly misleading and just gives the wrong impression. 
Oh, you're very noble about it. I think I'd probably just end up having uh, Ronan Keating hitting Marty Jobson with a rubber sword. <laughs> with Giles Brandreth dressed as a wood elf. But maybe... Well, yeah. I mean, you put it like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll... Uh... I'll, put a, I'll put a link to uh, South of Watford in the show notes. <laughs> Thanks, Blythe. <laughs> Bye. This is Bud from Bud's RPG Review, a YouTube channel where I review role-playing games, card games and board games, although if I'm honest, far less of the last two. I do in-depth video reviews of gaming products, all shot from the perspective of just my hands and whatever it is I am talking about. I cover mainstream things like D&D, Call of Cthulhu and Warhammer, as well as out-of-print and hard-to-get-hold-of material, and I take pride in always being thorough and fair. Additionally, I have a smaller sister channel, Budzine Review, where I take a more loose look at shorter material like zines, fanzines and mini-scenarios, with the aim being to do it in under 10 minutes, something I've managed to stick to so far. So if you have the time and the hankering for a fair review in my dulcet scouse tones, then I hope to see you there sometime soon. Bud out. I'll get me caught! Right, it's the end of the uh, gaming session. We're putting our jackets on and standing at the table, kind of inching towards the door, but we've still got a few things to say. And so uh, that's that's the idea of that's the idea of this bit of the podcast. So I wanted to update you because I mentioned about going to Auburn the Wizard Staff. I wanted to update you on how my game went, how it went with uh, Advanced Fighter Advance. I've never played it before. You have, haven't you? You've played it. I played Troika. I've run Troika, which is Advanced Fighting Fantasy, and I've played I've played Advanced Fighting Fantasy at Grogmeet as well. Yeah, Neil or Neil's game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I have to say it was really, it went really well. It went really well because um, it's it goes quite quick. I mean, the, the concept I had was that the players were champions of the books, so there was somebody who completed yeah. one of the heroes had completed um, the um, Cavern of the Snow Witch. And one had done uh, Firetop Mountain, one had done The Forest of Doom, and one had done Death Trap Dungeon. The idea is that they're like Titans. Or the Argonauts. Yeah, like they come together. Yeah. Come together to uh, rescue this uh, woman who um, would be, had been captured by a malevolent sorcerer. Yeah. Which we invented around the table okay. using the Ian Livingstone method. Because right. he used... Uh, baseball players and put together with a, a spaceship so Yastromo is the composite of a sports person and Nostromo oh, right. okay. so yeah. we, we created one around the table that was called Ronaldo Millennium <laughs> so Ronaldo and the Millennium Falcon Ronaldo <laughs> the Millennium and um, so they were on the return home after this mission and they were attacked uh, on board this uh, ship and it just kind of it was one of those that you know I like running these it, yeah. it started as it mean to go on it was like I'm gonna you, you've paid for the whole seat but you're only gonna use the edge of it for the next three hours so it <laughs> didn't stop it didn't stop it didn't stop from beginning to end so it was really good fun and I think the um, mechanics support that kind of thing is very simple but I used the Troika token oh yeah initiative. the Troika initiative method yeah. and it worked really well yeah it does work well doesn't it yeah. but it is good fun that pulling out the coloured uh, and I put in a couple of events in there as yeah. well yeah it's good fun because it, it does add an uh, element of drama to initiative 
doesn't it? Like, yeah. What is going to come out of the bag next? You know, yeah. very sense of unpredictability about it, which yeah. is quite good fun in a fight. Yeah, you know, you can't predict it. Like in some games with initiative, you can kind of predict that you're always going to go first, or it's always going to go first. But with that, it, it's not the case, is it? You know, like you get the monster talk and another monster talk and another monster talk, and then everyone's thinking, "Oh my god, you know, we're going to yeah. get killed here because the monster tokens keep coming out, yeah. our tokens aren't coming out." Yeah, and we passed the bag around as well, so yeah. we took it in turns to pull them out. And it was quite funny because uh, Mike kept pulling out the uh, black one, which was the, the one for the monster. Yeah. And it was quite funny. <laughs> oh, here he comes. Uh, yeah. here he comes yeah. out no, it is, a good, it is a, good, a good method. And I suppose going back to that, that's a method that's difficult to replicate online, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think very there physical, is a... Very physical. Yeah, there is, an online, there is an online way of doing it. There is an online way. There's a website that does it. Um, and I suppose you can share your screen, but I, but it, I'm not sure it'd be quite as good. No, it's very physical, very tactile, and it's yeah. very yeah. It, and it passing around the table gives yeah. a sense of it's moving. Yeah, it, just a very active it being passed around. Yeah, yeah. and I find that I find that with Vason, Vason uses cards. As I said, it's not like Savage Worlds, but uh, there are certain things in Vason where you can swap initiative cards with other players, and you can swap initiative cards with the monster. Um, again, that doesn't really work that well online, but you know, when everyone's got a card in front of them with a number on, it's very easy to see whose turn it is next, and people can sort of, you know, one one guy, um, Mark's character got an extra, uh, the monster was going first, and he got an extra success, and rather than doing damage with it, he used it to swap initiative cards. Right. So he took the monster's initiative and swapped it with his, which was last. So the next round, the monster went last, which allowed them to sort of not defeat it, but drive it off. Yeah. But those, that, like you say, is kind of physical thing that works better around a table than it does online. It adds a different dimension to the game, really. Yeah, right. And at the end of the last podcast, I set you a challenge. You did. Um, to did. go back to your fighting fantasy collection mm. and redo. Yeah. Warlock of Fight Up Mountain. Did you do your homework? I, I tried to do my homework. I did do some of it, but I did keep falling asleep because it was so boring. <laughs> oh. oh, sorry. It's it was interesting, but it is quite. Don't want to say. Don't want to say dull. That seems unfair, but it, it's a bit dull because it's it's very much go down a corridor. Do you want to open a door? Not open a door. Or keep yeah. going left, go north, go east. You could keep going down the corridors and not opening the doors a lot of the time. So there's lots of paragraphs where nothing much happens and you just feel like... I mean, people do say, just draw a map, but I didn't, didn't draw a map. Maybe that's my mistake. But, you know, you think, oh, I could go east, I could go west. Uh, I'll go west. Yeah. Okay, I'll go north. I wrote the, I'll go north. And it was interesting, I suppose, to compare... Um, Warlock of Atop Mountain to Crypt of the Sorcerer or yeah. Port of Peril which are the other two I had to go at yeah. and when you read Port of Peril and Crypt of the Sorcerer every paragraph is interesting oh, so almost every paragraph is interesting whereas in Warlock of Atop Mountain there are paragraphs which are simply taking you down a corridor and giving yeah. you a choice to go east to west or north and yeah. I suppose it's, it's of its time it's the first one to be fair isn't it it's the first yeah. one they did so you can understand why it's like that but it, yeah, it's the, it, new, the more modern ones hold up far better, I think. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I think uh, I suppose like any technology, isn't it? That 
I think the early ones, certainly I did the Forest of Doom recently, the early ones are more about giving you uh, decision branches and usually they're points in the map, yeah. whereas yeah. the later ones are, give you a bit more choice in the action, don't they? Yeah. And you can see that a little bit in uh, City of Thieves is how that develops because even though City of Thieves is like a dungeon and you're just moving around the city like it's a dungeon, it's less concerned with the map yeah. It's more concerned with yeah. the points of things happening. Yeah. And you can see why, back in the day, uh, kids would have got excited about Warlock Fight on Mount, because there is, there is very much a sense of choosing where you're going, because you could go this way, you could go that way. You know, you can open the door, you can open the door. But I suppose by comparison to the more modern fighting fantasy and later fighting fantasies, it's a bit, it's a bit on the dull side, because it, it has more of that, whereas the others have far less of it. You know, grip to the sorcerer has bigger paragraphs and, you know, it's giving you more, it's giving you choices, but they're more, it's more interesting. More seems to happen at every turn of the page. Whereas in Warlock Fight Up Mountain, there were bits where, I mean, it's, it's up to you, isn't it? You can open all the doors and that's an interesting things happen. Yeah. But you can ignore the doors and move through it and think, yeah, okay, well. There's noise scratching behind a door or something. I'll ignore that. Keep going. Because they become dull just walking down corridors, going left, going right, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm going to give you a choice. You can either do another one of the fighting fantasy books for next time. <laughs> you can play a face-to-face game of advanced fighting fantasy. Okay. Or you can just keep going down the corridor. Which of those three options do you want to take? I would play a face-to-face game of Advanced Fighting Fantasy. Definitely, yeah, definitely over. Do it. Don't make me do another one. Please don't (laughs) make me do another one. You made me do three. Port of Peril. I've done a bit of Port of Peril. Grips and Sorcerer. I can't do a fourth. It's it's inhumane. Okay, well, what I'll do between now and the next uh, podcast, we'll have a game of Fighting Fantasy, Advanced Fighting Fantasy. Yeah, that's good. If only, just to, because during the adventure, at the very end, uh, Albert and the wizard staff, the uh, sorcerer on the play character faced the evil sorcerer at the end, Ronaldo Millennium. <laughs> and he cast Zap. Zap, yeah. On him. And there was a Zap back. And I got to say the words as he died, the play character. (laughs) As the play character died, I could say, your adventure ends here. Yeah, (laughs) it was brilliant. (laughs) Highlight of the day, really. And uh, Megalomania. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, your podcast ends here. It really was a dream come true to interview Ian Livingstone, and it didn't disappoint. Thanks to Ian for taking time out to speak to me. Thanks to Fabio too, all those years of hanging around a game shop has perfected his miniature painting skills. He has an Etsy store where you can purchase some of the models he's created. Check them out via the show notes. You'll find Fabio on our Discord server where he's a regular contributor. If you'd like to have access, contact me on Twitter at the Grognard File or via the site at thegrognardfiles.com. The Grognard Files has a monthly book club, and next time we're looking at the Warlock Fight Up Mountain, I guess Blythe won't be coming, and fighting fantasy in general. It's on the first Sunday of the month, 
9.30am to 11am GMT and the discussion is in small breakout groups and you can determine your level of participation. Contact me if you want an invite. My attempts to inspire Blythe into the world of fighting fantasy will continue next time in part three of this episode. I was really impressed by the spirit of high adventure when I played the tabletop fighting fantasy game. It's got a lot going for it. And next time we'll have a poke around the monsters from out of the pit. If you like what we do, then there's three ways in which you can help. As content creators, we've fallen into the trap engineered by Silicon Valley where we crave exponential growth of personal validation to feel like worthy human beings. I know, it's terrible, but the only response is to feed this addiction. Uh, Number one, you can subscribe, follow, like, and if you can, review us on your pod box of choice. Two, pass it on. Why not reconnect with an old friend you used to play with? Seek out their email and send them a link to the Grognard files and encourage them to listen. And hey, you never know, you might start playing again. And third way, well, you can support us by tossing a few coins in the beret over at Patreon. Thank you to all of the Grog Squad and Patreons past and present who've encouraged us to reach this milestone episode. Much appreciated. I'll have to go now because I'm halfway through Steve Jackson's Sorcery and the Crown of Kings won't find itself. Until next time, adios amigos.